Hey everybody, this is Brendan Lemon. This is the Madness Continues podcast. Uh, so today, I don't know if you checked out my channel a little bit in the past, but I actually have, every once in a while, I actually bring on guests uh, on the podcast who are pretty cool people who are normally doing pretty cool shit in the world. And one of those guests I decided to bring on today is Michael Tallard, who is an economist and professor at Central Michigan University's author of half a dozen books, including uh, The Dummies Guide to Corporate Finance, uh, Analysis in Modern Warfare, Economics in Modern Warfare. He's an economic consultant. He's a professor. And he will one day, he's the future overlord of the earth. He will one day be overlord of the entire earth. Uh, so, Michael, how you doing? Doing great, doing great. How about yourself, man? I'm doing pretty good. We um we've been friends Fantastic. for we've been friends for a while, and uh, most of my podcast listeners are here from Cora. Um, they uh they're interested in lots of different topics, and a lot of things that we talk about are sometimes economics. Sometimes uh, I answer life questions. I answer questions on philosophy and things like this. Um, but maybe just a thing that we could do is kind of give a sense for probably most of the listeners who have not heard of you, a sort of what you, how you became an economist and sort of what you do just to outline a little bit about what, uh, you know, what, why they, why you're here and sort of what your expertise is. Okay. So, um, you, you, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners and, and you watch, uh, Game of Thrones, right? Uh, I fucking love Game of Thrones, man. Fantastic. Well, Tyrion Lannister's really, really summed up what I do fantastically uh, in, in my work. What he said is, I drink and I know things. And that's exactly what my job is. Uh, uh, it's a fantastic place to be, you know, because you're going to write books, you teach in classrooms, or, or, or people pay you to... to do a little bit of research and tell them what's going on. And then if they don't listen to you, you still get paid and it's their ass on the line. So it's a fantastic place to be. <laughs> I just love this because like you, <laughs> I just love this because when, right when, just for the listeners too, is like right when, as we're like start, starting to talk, I'm messaging Mike. And by the way, we, and I'll talk about this in another fucking podcast, but I had nothing but at literally an hour. He's the most patient man in the world. He's he's grading papers from one of his uh, corporate finance classes, and for an hour I'm messing around on GarageBand trying to get this to work. And he's like, "Hey man, it's no big deal. I'm grading papers, and I got half a bottle of Jose Cuervo with me." <laughs> <laughs> so it's it is literally like you just you drink, and you uh, and people pay you to know things. <laughs> That's man. Oh, that's so but, good. But you know, that's uh, it's uh, especially when you're on a, a doing in a field that's that's real specialized like this. Um, you know, if we were talking about I'm teaching a, a corporate finance class, and you got the corporate finance for dummies book, and yeah, that's all great and good. But you know, the really the the, the good stuff that's out there is is uh, in behavioral economics right now. That's that's the big name. I mean, that's the Nobel Prize winner this year for economics. Uh, one on uh, his theory of nudge theory. Which yeah, is that's fantastic. Dan Ariely, right? Or is that not Dan Ariely? No, 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 no. That's um. I'm just thinking about this. This so behavioral economics. This is fascinating. So what? What I wanted to talk about. We could talk about behavioral economics. I think in a second. What I wanted to talk about um, was a handful of of topics. But 
Sure. Um, one of which was I was really interested in discussing value with you uh, <laughs> and the concept of value and and how that relates to monetary value. So this might be a little and and you can correct me if I, I would invite you to correct me if I'm wrong here. So you know please you know please lead lead the conversation in terms of making sure that I'm not completely off base as I'm describing some of these things to you. But um, you know, one of the things that I understand just as a, a layperson who's getting more and more into business and into the business world is that basically we have a, a concept of value. And value, and for, again, for like for the average Quora listener, this might be a little, might sound a little odd. And if it is, it's because it, my understanding of it is a little odd. But basically, value is a concept that exists in the world. Things are valuable, and that value means something to someone. So, but, but cost or price, monetary value is the, is the amount of money that is, you know, the value that is stored in, in dollars that is transferred for something that has value otherwise. Does, does this make sense? Am I doing a good job describing this at all? Yeah, sort of. It's, uh, value is, is, uh, is, is. Basically, value is a state of being useful or a state okay. of being desired. How much you want or need something, um, uh, and we measure value uh, using currency. Currency by itself is nothing. It's just just it's pointless unless unless somebody else is willing to take your money. Uh, your money's worthless, you know. Sure. I mean, so it's. Uh, <clears throat> Well, that was part of the argument with with Bitcoin. I think was that there was this idea that I, you know, I, I had all these friends who just went insane in the last few weeks, and were throwing money at uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, blockchain currencies that exist online, and uh, were really, really wanting me to go purchase. I had a, a couple of buddies who were sending me, who live in Europe, who were sending me these different, like, "Hey, here's a purchasing package, and you can get involved for as little as." 50 or 60 bucks and all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's so it's so ridiculous. And I think they mean well, uh, most of the, I don't think any of them are, you know, scam artists or these kinds of guys, but I think that what the the issue that I had with it was I I kept thinking, look, I I can I can appreciate the idea that there can be a blockchain currency that is a a global currency which re which is a retainer of value. It's a unit of value that has an exchange. It's not completely indifferent from essentially the fiat money that uh, the United States currently uses uh, backed by the Federal Reserve, which really means nothing um, so far as I understand. You can correct me on what I'm wrong about here in a moment, I'm sure. But what, what I'm... What I what is fascinating to me is basically the, this idea that there's this this blockchain currency. But the thing that seems crazy to me is that it it doesn't it it doesn't make any sense if the if Bitcoin is so unbelievably valuable. Like it's got a, I think it's high with seventy eight hundred dollars or something like this. It seems completely useless in terms of its actual currency, meaning that it's its unit of exchange. That like it, it can't be you know people are not going around and actually purchasing things for Bitcoin blockchains or even segments of Bitcoin blockchains. Like the reason that part of the reason that the United States money is valuable is because we accept that a dollar is worth whatever it is it's worth, and that exchange value goes down all the time, which is inflation essentially. 
Um, if I'm wrong about this again, you can correct me in a second. But that seemed to be the issue with uh, Bitcoin so far as I could tell. As I was like, people are putting a lot of money into this, and it's completely speculative. It has to deflate almost necessarily because there's no actual use for it except just cha- exchanging it for other people for potential speculative gain. No, there's a use. There's a use for Bitcoin, and uh, that was demonstrated when uh, when uh, Silk Road, you know, the uh, the, the, the website yeah. where everybody's trading yeah. drugs. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. When when that guy hit Bitcoin, the value of the Bitcoin dropped like crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, unless it, I'm trying to get somebody murdered, <laughs> right? That, that that is a fantastic way. He's got a lot of value to you. So. <laughs> Uh, maybe that in itself, uh, the, the fact that it's, uh, it, it's, it's a way that you can actually participate in these, these types of transactions that you don't want a paper trail with, mm. it gives that, that, it gives that currency a little bit of added bonus and a little bit of extra value because now you're lowering the risk associated with using it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There's nothing, there's nothing underpinning the value of of Bitcoin specifically. Now, blockchain currencies, blockchain technology is a really cool thing. Um, there's actually talk recently of that that uh, uh, central banks uh, are going to start experimenting with the use of blockchain uh, technologies for currencies uh, rather than traditional methods. But still, the, the national currencies are going to remain the fundamental uh, form of transaction just because every time you Every time you buy or sell anything, you're, you're you're deciding not only the value of the thing you're buying, but you're also deciding the value of the money that you're holding. Mm. So, and and the same thing with the the the, the person at the store. You know, they're they're deciding the value of of say you want to buy a a, a a bottle of Jack Daniels or something. They're deciding the the what the value of that Jack Daniels is to them, and they're deciding that. Uh, the, the currency that you're giving to them uh, is worth one bottle of Jack Daniels. So mm, mm. It's, the, it's, it's the goods we're actually looking at. The goods uh, that it, it is is what actually has value. Money is just a way for us to. It functions like an IOU. Money's just a big. Uh, it's an IOU saying, you know, I'm giving you something of value, and uh, in return, I'm giving you this slip of paper that's an IOU. Now. The, that makes money, that makes currency uh, better than an IOU or more useful than an IOU is something called transferability. You can move it from person to person to person, and it's not just going back and forth between two people. Yeah, so, it's it's a uni- it's universally transferable, basically. Right, and yeah. that and the, and that is insured essentially by the federal government, basically, that the unit no, that's, that's insured by the fact that uh, everybody's using it. I got mean, it. Yeah. Uh, you can you can use anything as a currency. Really, anything could be a currency. Uh, you know, like we said, Bitcoin. That's not backed by anything, but people do still use it as a currency. There is a fundamental value that it has. Mm. Uh, you know, you go to you're talking about some of the other cur- types of currencies out there. Basically, everything's a fiat currency, either a, either a fiat currency or or a barter. There's nothing inherently valuable about gold unless you're using it to build electronics or something of that matter. I mean, just because it's shiny doesn't make it inherently valuable. This is where we get into the uh, what what uh, John Smith called the the, the the paradox of value. He 
you compare gold and water. You know, water is is infinitely valuable, but uh, has no has almost no price to it. You can get it practically free almost everywhere in the world. Mm. Um, uh, and, and yet we place so much more value on gold, but it. It, it is in that paradox that makes perfect sense because because gold has no inherent value uh, because it's easy to mold because it's easy to carry around um, because you're not gonna you know you're not gonna be drinking it or, or making clothes with it or you know sprinkling it on your food you know the spice trades and the silk trades and all that good stuff is barter is very very popular for a long time mm. but because you're not gonna you're not doing anything any of that with gold really uh is perfect as a measurement of 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 uh exchange and other things it's useless otherwise yeah so this is interesting because i think this is what and this is edges back potentially it could edge back toward behavioral economics here but it's fascinating to me because so you're saying what i'm hearing you say is basically look gold doesn't have any you you really doesn't have a lot of utility or utilitarian value, that that there's not a lot we can do with it. Obviously, we can use it for electronics. Um, I know it is valuable there, but that's something that's very recent. And as you were mentioning in your, you know, in your, in your answer here to that, that question, basically, for for centuries, gold was used um, to be transferable as a currency without really having any utility to it at all. And that's what you were saying. I think Adam Smith, uh, the paradox of, of gold and water, as you were mentioning earlier, um, or uh, I, I think you said that. So this is fascinating to me because I think what is the what is the thing then that essentially gives us a uh, how do we perceive value and how is value perceived sort of in the marketplace, how are things created that are more valuable than their monetary worth? Because it, it seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if I'm someone who's trying to create a, a business or something like this, I have to create a situation in which I'm creating value in exchange for money. The, per, the perception of that value has to be greater than the cost that I accrued to create the value in order to take a profit basically that's essentially how that system works is that correct uh yeah 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 <laughs> i feel like i just dropped a lot on you really quickly <laughs> no 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 that's uh it's, it's an interesting question see, because um yeah the, fundamentally you know at, at the at, at, at the rational level what we call the rational paradigm of economics which was you know the the primary way of thinking of things that people make rational decisions that we maximize our utility and you know the markets are efficient and yada 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 all this other bullshit that we that we now know is not true yeah uh it's it's i love that you yes. just i love that you just brushed away the history of economics like it's all bullshit <laughs> it is it's total bullshit all right so the idea that any of us are rational is 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 ridiculous um all right so but that is the fundamentals that is the basis upon which most uh the the history of economics is built uh is that yes you're going to produce a thing you're going to get more uh value and return for because you've you're creating something called economic value added by put by by using your your mind or your time or your efforts into producing something or or exchanging it for something of greater value and 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 so forth and 
you know, anything that happens within the market, the market will respond immediately and perfectly to, to changes in demand and supply and this and that and the other thing. And it's, it's, it's all nonsense. Value and, and, and value and price uh, are all in your head. It's yeah. because we're, all, we're completely insane. Yeah. <laughs> One of us, we're completely insane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is this is perfect. I'm I'm glad you said this because the name of this podcast is the madness continues, and it feels like that's exactly that. Something of what this boils down to is that we we're all like you said we're completely insane. So this this makes sense to me because the perceptual value and that's what hit me at the bit, Bitcoin thing. Just to to bring it back to a recent example is because when I'm looking at this this fucking spike, this big spike that happens. All these people are explaining to me, they're like, oh man, this spike, let me tell you what's going on with this thing. It's that it was supposed to be there was going to be a fork and you were going to get two for one and like all of these discussions. And in my head, I'm still thinking to myself, yeah, but the only reason, here's what's insane to me about this is that the only reason I would pay seven grand for a Bitcoin is if it had, if it, if its value increased over time, it's an asset. It's either worth exactly the money that I'm giving to it in which case I'm going to go exchange it for exactly the same amount of value, and in which case this is a, a, a zero, I mean, a, a, you know, negative, or not a negative gain, it's just a zero gain, it's the same. It would be exactly like having the money that I already had. So I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't go buy the Bitcoin and add an extra step in the process. I would just keep the money that I already had. Or it's going to increase in value over time, but that has to be based on some kind of you know, concept in which Bitcoin in the future is going to be more valuable than the cash I'm exchanging for it now. And I, I can't necessarily imagine exactly what that future was going to be. And so, sure. you know, even doing research and looking into all of these different places online where people are talking about it, they're like, oh, no, it's definitely going to, you know, here's what's going to happen. Here's how Bitcoin's going to evolve over time. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I just don't see this as a great example of that. And lo and behold, and I'm not saying this as a, you know, Bitcoin's value and and, and it could very well go up again in the in the future. I don't I haven't even checked it in a few hours. And it very well might have, but looking at it at the seven k plus mark, I was like, this just doesn't seem. I can't imagine a future in which that that's possible. So, you know, that's and then to bring it back to your point, it seems to me like this is all in our head. So there's people who are looking at the value going up thinking this is a hot time to buy because I see this speculative Bitcoin value rising, but it's not really based on anything except this feeling of I'm seeing it going up or something like and that. That's, and that's exactly why you, both you and I, we would fail the test of evolution right here. This, this is right here. I mean, this, this, this kind of behavior is, is really, really deeply ingrained uh, in our, in our minds. Um, Consider this, uh, you know, we're just sitting around, you know, uh, I don't know, grilling mammoth or something, you know, doing our thing back in the caveman days, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden we see a lot of animals and people just running all in one direction and we're sitting there going, well, well, what's going on? Is it a race? What are they doing? We're, we're, you and I, we're sitting around wondering, nah, it's not worth it. They're just running that direction. There's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh uh, man, that's funny. <laughs> it's so probably it, that's exactly true. I I find it so hard. No, but this is true, Mike. And it, it's funny that this is. <laughs> it's funny that this is true because, 
you know, there was, I read, uh, I forget which book I read on economics and it said, um, it was saying, you know, the, the problem, they were like, look, the problem with, uh, economics as a, as a school of thought is that there's only one type of people who respond rationally to, uh, economic questions in the way that economists think they respond. And that's other economists. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Up until uh, you get to about the 1970s, you get some people, uh, Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tursky, uh, Robert Schiller, all real big names in, in behavioral economics. And, and what we're talking about, herd behavior here and, and speculative bubbles, uh, Robert Schiller, uh, he's really the, the, the big name in, in, in developing the theory behind speculative bubbles and, uh, you know, uh, investor sentiment. And that's what we've got a lot of right now is a lot of very, very strong investor sentiment, mm. um, especially when we've got uh, a lot of a, a lack of confidence in the traditional economy. Uh, you know, right now, the, the, the economy, you know, the, the stock market is is growing by leaps and bounds making you know breaking record after record again and again and again while the underlying economy stagnates mm. uh and uh you know we got over over a third of uh student loan debt that's not being repaid we've got record levels of of uh credit card and consumer debt that's now starting to not be repaid you know and um, this is this is all things that that people lose confidence in. So so they want to know well where do they turn? Where's where's the where's the stability? Yeah. And so for, for the millennial generation especially, I think there's there's a lot of attraction. You know, the the, the generation that grew up with the internet is as kind of a. Uh, a, a safe haven almost of, you know, you, you can do it. It's a place where you can do what you want. Uh, and there's a certain degree of freedom um, from, from traditional restrictions and traditional norms. And they see Bitcoin and they go, well, this is going to be the next great thing. This is going to be fantastic. And uh, the problem is nobody is actually accepting it. You're not going to the store and, and, and you know, when, if, if, if the economy does crash, you're not going to be able to take your bitcoins in over to the shop and save and, and, and buy, you know, cereal and toilet paper, you know? Yeah. So this is exactly that, – that's the, that is exactly what I'm thinking is there's very little sort of utility there. Um, and right. well, and what do you – you know, let's get back to this is that we were entering a very strange space and, and something that's very popular that I actually was not planning on talking to you about but I would be interested in hearing your thoughts about is this guaranteed minimum income that everybody keeps talking about. Um, I find that interesting. Uh, I would, am extremely spec speculative that anything like that would take place. Um, but I am, uh, you know, the, the amount of discussion that's been taking place around it, I think has been very fascinating. And, uh, if you want to, I, I would just invite you maybe if you want to talk about that for a few minutes to talk about guaranteed minimum income. And again, like I have some podcast listeners who are, you know, live in India or in the Russian Federation or things like this. So uh, this this is an idea, just to be clear, that is sort of bringing more, getting more and more attention in the West, particularly. Right, right. Uh, it's, it's getting a lot of attention, attention, yeah, in the West and uh, uh, and, and especially across European nations. Um, Finland, I think, is experimenting with a little bit of it. 
Yeah, there's there's been talk of uh, potentially experimenting with it in, I think, Sweden and maybe Switzerland. I forget exactly, but um, the the idea of a of a universal of a of a universal income, a, a basic universal income, is that. Um, it's, it's based on uh, something called exogenous growth theory. I know we're going to get a little bit jargony here. It's okay. Uh, yeah, it's okay. Let's let's roll through it if you're comfortable. I'm comfortable with it if you are. Basically, what this means is that here's the best part of this though. You could make up anything you want about these jar- about any <laughs> jargon term, and I and my audience would probably not know. You're like, yeah, it's just called the the bitch ass uh, uh, curve theory. Like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, then you're going to love my give-a-fuck index. I'm telling you later on. <laughs> oh, we got to hear about the give-a-fuck index in a minute. Yeah, okay. So, universal basic income. Um, the, the idea is that, um, well, since, since, the, uh, since the start of the Industrial Revolution, uh, at least in the U.S., I'm going to use some U.S. data here just because that's the one I'm most familiar with, uh, you know, since I live here in Alpha. Uh, yeah. But uh, since, since the Industrial Revolution, uh, U.S. GDP growth per capita has grown um, uh, at, at, at an almost constant 2%. Per year, so I mean, we're we're talking really, really constant through recessions, through booms. We're talking uh, average GDP growth per capita uh, has 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 been extremely steady. The, the the one exception to that was the Great Depression, and then the boom uh, during World War II, and then that was it. Other than that, it's weathered everything from 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 highs to lows without really budging much of much of an inch. Mm. Uh, and now, all of a sudden, post-2008, uh, by all accounts, uh, by all estimates, and, and this is, you know, c- coming, this is, we're, we're starting to see the data now where this is coming true. Uh, that's actually decreasing and, and, and projected to stay uh, 25% lower than it has been now. Uh, I know it's going from 2% to 1.5%. That doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you talk about a 25% drop in productivity per person, that's actually really huge. That's that's pre-industrial revolution levels uh, for productivity per person. Um, so as 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 we as we as we try anyways to work, and we try to. Uh, stimulate the economy and we try to where we try to get people to consume 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 is the idea because uh, uh, when people buy stuff you know they they are going to you know uh, then inventories are depleted and and companies are forced to go back into production and in order to do that they need to hire people and hiring there again increases the total income that people are making, so they buy more stuff and yeah. turns, turns into a big cycle. Um, now, by contrast, just 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 for those naysayers who, who are going to say, "Oh no, well we need to give you know tax cuts to the rich," and that's how we do this this thing. And uh, there is absolutely no reason to think that. <laughs> uh, well. In, investments investors are investors are 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 
very, very, uh, uh, they're, 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 they're very scared people. They're very anxious people. Uh, you know, unless, unless there's a reason, unless there is a, a stable investment, unless an investment is already proven that it is stable, it is growing, you know, the, the general investment community is not going to invest in that. We've, we've seen that, uh, empirically lately with, with, uh, well, I mean, with Bitcoin, I mean, Bitcoin is a good example of that, that like there's. There's a lot of speculative action going on in in the Bitcoin marketplace, so to speak. And it, it were it a normal investment that people saw as a as 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 reliable as you know quote unquote maybe traditional investments, you would get uh, options trading and other sorts of things like this, which may end up balancing out the Bitcoin market. But oh, you do have that with Bitcoin. Yeah, are there Bitcoin options, options that are taking place now? Yeah, futures contracts, options contracts, you got everything. Yeah, the whole the whole the whole thing. Wow. Yeah. Oh. Uh, well, well, that shows me. <laughs> but yeah, no, the uh the the, the data is showing you individuals and companies both where whereas at one point they were net investors, now they're net savers. So we're not they're, 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 people are not people and companies, they're not putting their money out there in, into investments that, that stimulate growth. Um and you know, even if they were, you know, give the idea, you know, the 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 old you know the the old classical economic school I thought yeah they're they're due, you know, even if you were saying that they were net investors, um, there there's no reason, there's absolutely no reason. In fact, it would be an inefficiency uh, or, or a paradox for a company to hire more people than they needed. Than they, yeah, than they would possibly need. Yeah. Unless it, 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 that, yes, exactly. And what seems so interesting to me about this, and I just returns to some of what you were saying earlier, it feels like, is it, there's a real discrepancy between, like you were saying, obviously there's demonstrable discrepancy between pr- productivity and, and, uh, and, and wages, uh, which seems to me that the average, what indicates, just to bring it back to value, is that the average worker is less valuable than the work they're producing. And that's been, the, that's been the f- uh, unique sort of in a history of measurable economics in the, in a, in, in the fashion that it is currently happening. Um, and, yep. and, 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 and just to maybe add one more point to that, it seems to me like the potential that reason that that is occurring is because of all of this automation and the rise of, uh, a, a almost insane amount of, uh, of, uh, software and, uh, enablement to most job positions. Right. No, you, you hit it right on the nose, actually. You know, I mean, you think we talk about the industrial revolution, really, we have not seen the end of it, uh, when you when you really break it down to what it, what it means to uh, pursue uh, 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 an income to pursue a living, we're still we're now reaching the end of that. It's not the just the industrial revolution that we're looking at. That was just the that was just the tip of the iceberg. Mm. We're now reaching the end of what's the overall economic epoch of the automation. Everything's being automated. The automation revolution and um we're now starting to reach the end of that i'll give you a great example my own job all right so economists typically traditionally their job was to uh collect data analyze the data provides you know reports to 
to, you know, whoever their boss was, you know, make recommendations, things of that nature. Um, mm. Now, these days, my job and, and the job of most economists is, is not actually to do really any of that. Uh, it's, it's, it's now what we're doing is programming algorithms. It's more automation. It's, it's yeah. all about artificial intelligence. Uh, and so when a customer, when a client comes to me and they say, you know, I'm having a problem with, you know, this, this issue, you know, I, I tell them, all right, well, yeah, I can, I can, you know, do that for you and you could hire me or I can just, you know, program something for you in, in, in Excel or Python or, or, or SQL or something. And, uh, you, you know, it'll pump out the reports uh, that you want automatically. Mm. And they, lo- they love that idea. So, you know, I get a lot of co- clients that way, just uh, making sure everything's automated and uh, an autopilot for them. So this is such a strange – so this is why guaranteed minimum income seems like a, a, an option that some economists are sort of seriously touting is because it feels like you're – you know what at some point the value and i forget the uh i feel i forget the name of the presbyterian uh reverend or minister who originally thought of this idea i want to say it's uh it's it'll come to me in a sec methuselah malthusian i think it's the malthusian dilemma um thomas yeah thomas malthus right isn't that his name uh, yeah, sounds right. Sorry, you just, you know, bringing up Methuselah, that's a little different. So. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not Methuselah. It's, uh, I think it's Thomas <laughs> Malthus, and uh, I could be wrong about that. Somebody listening to this podcast will probably have to go look it up. But basically the idea was that working some rough figure sort of in early industrial revolution Britain, he basically was like, look, the problem is that there will always be more people than there will be the ability to provide those people with a lots of, of – of value so that they, so that their value increases that basically it's like, look, we don't, we, the number of problems that need to be solved by people who can solve those problems, uh, will always be, uh, lower than the amount of people there are. So like there was some, some issue here with, and I'm doing a very awful job of describing this right now. You'll have to go look this up, uh, listener to the podcast, but basically it was saying that, because of economic conditions that exist sort of in the world and will probably always exist in the world, there will always only be barely enough resources for the most amount of people. That most people will live paycheck to paycheck with only enough resources to get them by, whereas there will be a handful of people who will essentially inherit all of the – you know, mo- most of the resources that flow in any given direction because of their economic apparatus that they've built around them through you know, whatever corporations or means of production that they – that they own that's uh you know that's not that's that, that hasn't always been true and nor does it necessarily have to have to always be true um uh, but it will uh, under the under the current uh economic structures that we have put in place it it will necessarily eventually become true. And we are starting to Hmm. see that. We're starting Hmm. to see that point. Now, will universal basic income, will that fix the problem? Uh, No, it's going to, all that's really going to do is delay the inevitable. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, With universal basic income, uh, so you're just like, maybe we should just put ourselves out of our misery now. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. It's, no, it's it's natural. It's 
what we got to do is look at the natural progression of, of, of how things are going. Um, rather than consider, you know, rather than continue to try to perpetuate or continue on the same path that we have been, that is now starting to fall apart. That's now starting to cease to function properly. Mm. We need to look at, and we're, and we see this. We see that there's, there, there are people and and certain industries around the world that are starting to guide us in that direction naturally. But we need, uh, we need more involvement uh, from from our fiscal structures to to really make this happen. Mm. Is that we're really reaching the point where, um, you know, I, there there was a time where. You know, in order to make a living, you farm. That was it. That was the agricultural revolution. You farm, and that replaced, you know, hunting and gathering. You know, people still hunt and gather today, but you know, that was yeah. not the primary source, right? Yes, so exactly. You got farming, and then after that, the primary source of making your living of 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 you know bringing you know keeping a a roof over your head and food on the table after farming what it was to specialize in something get a job and 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 produce something uh you know facilitate the automation facilitate industrialization facilitate the the programming of uh artificial intelligence and really just facilitate automation well more and more and more you know the it is the job of it, it is the jobs of people and and this is true for every job and every sector that you can think of we are simply becoming facilitators for automation well yeah well it seems it seems to me that what we what we're becoming are are stewards for for the capital or that so there's so let's let's bring this back to value a little bit it feels like and you can correct me if i'm taking it again uh, in some direction that this does not make sense but it feels to me like you have we have uh, a, a large amount. So the means of production, which have always existed, because people had to have something that enabled them to survive. So that whether that was you know hunting and gathering, uh, Akulian tools uh, for you know hundreds of thousands of years, then what Clovis man spear points and things like this, whatever those things were that had to be produced, that were things that people had that and it had us used to get the me- you know as the means of production to uh, enable our 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 survival those things um were bequeathed to the next generation that there was an increase in the number of things and the ability to leverage uh you know knowledge to produce other things that could then uh ensure our greater and greater survival and abundance and you so, just hit it right there yeah knowledge knowledge is that's where that's where we're going with this now it's not just to not just uh producing not it's no longer just about uh producing food or producing manufactured goods <laughs> more and more and more we are now producing ideas we are becoming innovators as systems across sectors our jobs our role as people is not to produce anymore but to innovate to come up with new ideas to come come up with new inventions uh um, new methods of going about things, acquiring or developing new knowledge. So now that it's no longer about simply creating, I mean, we can auto, just like we automated farming. Um, and then now we can, um, 
you know, we we're automating. I mean, our, we're automating. We're automating our automation now. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? No, well, and this is essentially what artificial intelligence is doing. But I mean, like to just to, to 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 finish out the contours of my point just a little bit, and and maybe sure. hopefully not put too fine a point on it, but it. It feels like you're exactly right about that that, 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 that the next step in this process is basically shepherding this automation, which is essentially guarding or, or, or stewarding the next iteration of the amount of capital that is an uh, inheritance of the current generation of all past generations that have basically brought this up and together. But what's so strange about that to me is that there are people, there are certain people who have the access to those that capital and the and decide what to do with it and and other people who have no access whatsoever um almost and that that feels strange to me um it's a little bit bizarre and i say this partially because i'm reading ray dalio's principles right now and um had connected with someone recently who uh, actually knows ray dalio which is kind of crazy um, Ray Dalio is the, one of the most successful, uh, maybe, mo- maybe the most successful hedge fund manager, uh, who, uh, who's ever lived. And, uh, people call him the Steve Jobs of, um, of, uh, investing. And one of the things that's fascinating to me about this is that these guys, when they get to this level where they have this massive amount of wealth that they control and own, essentially, they're, they're, they have power over very large economic decisions that at a certain level begin to transcend the concept of, uh, of simple transactions and then become sort of, uh, they, they have a, a philosophical and almost ethical or moral element that's applied to them. Meaning like when you're wielding, let's say $40 billion or $170 billion, this is a massive amount of change that can take place. And what's odd about that is that Guys who are making those decisions, who are now continuing to automate them, are also uh, making decisions that have ramifications at the level of 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 the human race potentially. That like you know there are there are people who could make a series of different decisions and radically change the way that the world works, and not in a way that we imagine from movies. Like we're not ta- I'm not talking about Donald Trump hitting the button and you know, going to war with North Korea, which then trips off a nuclear war that annihilates sort of the physical infrastructure we see around us. I'm talking about, you know, Ray Dalio in his book talks about that the the only reason Chicken McNuggets were able to happen, the, uh, the only reason Chicken McNuggets were able to happen was that the people who were going to buy the chickens in order to process them and then make the nuggets had to change their entire method of forecasting chicken, chicken prices in order to ensure that their their supply chain could uh, guarantee a certain price minimum by the time it was served at the individual McDonald's, I mean, when you think about that, that is absolutely nuts. Like it's it's such a large and wide amount of of uh, of of, of uh, calculations that that had to be done based on a handful of decision makers. That is something that has affected all of our lives. There's nobody listening to this in the United States who hasn't had fucking chicken McNuggets. So I just think about that. I, I, I think maybe I went on for a little bit, but it, the stewardship, I think, of the of – the, it's almost like the, the capital and the wealth that exists almost feels like it exists independent of us, and we've become sort of stewards for that capital, which is both value stored in some form of currency, but then, and to your point, value stored in the form of knowledge. 
That is, that is exactly right. We are, there is a certain amount of stewardship of, um, you know, uh, and, and that is the way we manage that is through through fiscal policy. Uh, that's through, you know, taxation and, and ex- government expenditures so that, you know, you know, economy, giant engine, got to keep it moving so we keep the, the capital flowing throughout it. Um, but what we end up with is um, there was a, a, an economist called Joseph or Joseph Schumpeter. There's a there's a type of growth. Uh, now, we were talking about exogenous. That's where you take things, you take capital, you take uh, money or resources or what have you, and you give it to people and they say spend it. The idea is that they spend it. They, uh, so they consume things, and it, it, it stimulates growth through through uh, increased uh, production, increased employment, and so forth. And that's exactly what's going to happen with universal basic income, is if you have this, this capital and you make it available to people at any given time, it has no fundamentally different – there's no distinction. There's no fundamentally different function for universal basic income than there is for – uh, safety nets that we already kind of have in place, things like food stamps and, and, and um, social security and things of this nature. It's still, yeah. you're still making these, these, all you're doing is making funds available uh, for the purpose of consumption, which is great that, you know, that makes sure that people will have a, a minimum, you know, degree of, 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 of living quality, but it's not going to solve the fundamental problem. It's not going to solve the underlying problem, which is how do we stimulate growth to the point where this is no longer necessary? Yeah. Uh, where, so you, you, what we have is Schumpeter now comes into play. We have Schumpeterian growth, which, which is endogenous. This says that... By the way, I just comes- want to remind everybody that Schumpeter is actually the fifth planet from the sun. Yes. <laughs> His ego was that large. Yeah. So. Oh. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Go ahead. Schumpeter. Yes, Schumpeter. Joseph Schumpeter. Uh, he uh, he comes out with this idea that uh, that growth comes not from stimulus, not from just simple consumption and production, but from knowledge and something called knowledge spillover. Basically, the idea is simple. You and I and everyone else has their own set of ideas, their own unique set of ideas. You know, nobody's smarter than anybody else. We all just have kind of a unique skill set, right? A unique sure. Set of ideas. We all observe right. each other and yeah, learn they, new things from each other. Yeah, got it. And as, as we learn from each other, as we take information from one person to another, uh, we incorporate that knowledge into our own unique set of skills and knowledge and create something entirely new. We take this to someone else's perspective and we bring it into our own to create a brand new perspective, developing innovation. So we have something that's brand spanking new. This is a what this this innovation, this uh, sharing of knowledge and knowledge spillover is where innovation occurs. And it's, it, it's always it, it has always been innovation that stimulates growth. Yeah, it's never been consumption or production. Consumption and production they will. They will continue to stagnate. They will they will keep you where you're at, but they're not going to improve. They're not going to create economic development. They're not going to take us into the next generation where, you know, uh, we have, you know, 
you know, the 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 the, the utopia of the future that we're looking for. But with with well, be, we because it, about- because let me try let me try to to unpack that slightly. And I know we're we're actually running up on time a little bit here, which is sad yeah. because I think we're getting into a really good topic. But we'll have to do a part two. But the um. That's a little bit sad because it feels like to to hear, and it makes sense to me because it feels like um, the the reason that is true, prob- maybe from my perspective as a sort of philosopher, is that it it seems like the the c- consumption is only cons- continuing to fulfill the status quo. That all we will have is lateral yeah. growth, meaning right. that the problems that are being solved are are only temporarily solving the same problems again. So that yes. the people who are going to receive the benefits of that uh, fueling consumption are the people who are only already currently solving problems. That there's no incentive to solve any new problems in that environment because right. everything, all you're doing is is pouring more fuel on the fire. It's, we we've already seen. We saw it during the during the agricultural revolution. You know, growth per person. Was was stagnant, you know. In order to have more and more growth, in order to have more growth per person, or to have more stuff per person, uh, you just needed to have more people. You yeah. didn't have more stuff per person. You just had more people. Now we hit the industrial revolution, and all of a sudden we have all this innovation, all this new stuff that, that these innovations that are occurring, and growth explodes. But now that's slowing down again, and we're hitting this 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 slowdown again, where we're reaching to the point where we're no longer. Uh, where where population is now starting to surpass our 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 production growth again. Yeah. Uh, so the only way to to we're at that point again once again where the only way to have more growth is to have more people. Yeah, but that's we can't. But, but but that but that's exactly and that's exactly what I think the fifteen you know hundred scientists or whatever came out with a paper recently that was um, to that point, which is essentially that the problems of overpopulation um, and surplus are not you know, are not going away and we haven't really done anything to address them. And that, that, that feels very real to me because we we're living essentially, you know, the idea of, like you said, the agricultural revolution is you just simply, you have to have more people. And it wasn't until the relationship between, uh, work and the ability to do work and time was inverted by the addition of fossil fuels, uh, that it felt like more work could be done with less people, which encouraged all of that growth, which then encouraged more people. But the problem with that is that we simply don't have enough land or space to deal with all of that stuff. And it, it, that's at least that's what it feels like to me. I'm doing a very – this is like finger painting. I'm not doing a very good job of eloquently – making my point. But I think that, you know, this is exactly the issue, which is that if you listen to guys like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, and really what I'm doing here, just FYI for everybody listening, is sort of regurgitating points that Peter Thiel made in his book Zero to One, that there is a there is a changed relationship um, of something, that, that, that there is always a relationship between two things that changes when innovation occurs. And his point is that not a lot of innovation is occurring. That's actually, it's interesting. I don't know if you've read any Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel, by the way, the angel investing billionaire uh, who originally invested in, I think, Round A and Facebook. Um, he, so, you know, some of his money might be Russian. I don't know. We do have one listener from the Russian Federation who's tuned into every episode I've had. So, uh, Fantastic. yeah, I I personally I think it's Vladimir Putin, and I also really want him to be a guest. <laughs> <laughs> 
I so want Vladimir Putin to be a guest on this podcast. Uh, oh man, I uh, would have to put a lot of crosses in my room though, and get some garlic and other things like that if I was going to do it though. If, if, if it's Putin listening to you, I want to pitch my one of my earlier books, Psychology and Modern Warfare. You're doing a fantastic job with with the principles that I lay out in that book. Job, yeah, I uh, I have not read that book, but I really want to, uh, and that makes me really super want to read it now. Also, Michael. Um, I, you know, let's do this. We're running up on time a little bit. Uh, and we got I gotta go. Um, we gotta get, get going. We could do a longer episode, but I've promised my listeners for a while that we'll try to keep it at an hour or under, uh, maybe you and I can schedule another time to record a, a much longer form episode where we unpack some more of these, uh, ideas and I'll defer to listeners. I'm sure they'll have interesting questions or comments and we can bring that in. But why don't you talk a little bit about your, your canon and the work that you've produced, um, and uh, it's particularly, I think, your, your kind of big three, which is the psycho- psychology of modern warfare, analysis of modern warfare, and economics in modern warfare, uh, which I think are all very interesting looking books. They're, they're terrible. Those are my first three books that I read. <laughs> <laughs> that, that being said, they are extremely popular. Uh, they, they are extremely popular. Um, the the, 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 idea, the idea behind those is that uh, we already have the tools available because warfare in itself is not necessarily uh, something that needs to occur. What we're really worried when, when we're dealing with warfare, we're not dealing with with people fighting each other. We're dealing with a fundamental underlying conflict, some some difference in ideas that people have between each other about the way things should be, and then that leads to conflict between them. Sure. Uh, so we have the tools available. You're never going to actually kill an idea unless you kill everybody that has that idea. And human race being, you know, um, what it is, we have this tendency when people fight us, uh, fight our ideas, we have this tendency to dig in and actually the, the idea takes off and becomes more popular because you're bringing more attention to it. And they see that, you know, you're trying to, to, to suppress that idea. So it actually becomes more popular. Yeah. It's counter, completely counterproductive. But we, what we do, we do have the tools available to us to end conflict without warfare. Now, what that fundamentally does is that doesn't end conflict, but it gives us a set of tools available that are more effective than traditional warfare and mm. ending conflict, preventing conflict, and even pr- predicting potential conflicts and dismantling them before they can start to form. Yeah. So together that trilogy of books is an outline for um, ending warfare. It, it, those books are, 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 are uh, basically an instruction manual between them uh, on how to end war forever. Wow, man. Uh, you know, I love that you're, this is a, 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 a problem that is a time immemorial and you, sir, are attempting to innovate our way out of it. Um, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing, Mike. I'm going to have to take a look at them. Um, or maybe not. Cause you said you're the worst, they're the worst. <laughs> that is, I could not have scripted that better, buddy. I loved that. <laughs> And uh, just for everybody listening, as we're running up on time, Michael and I know each other through Facebook, uh, which proves that you can meet interesting people on social media. Um, uh, just like many of you met me through Cora, and I've, I've spoken many, with many of you through Cora. 
Um, I've met Mike through Facebook. We've never actually met up in real life, I don't think. No, no. I think you were moving down to Chicago when we first started talking. Yeah, that's exactly uh, what's what happened. And now I'm eyeing moving to New York. So there's uh, there's quite a lot of, of movement going on in my life. Uh, you were, I think, in you you were not teaching at CMU when we started talking, though. I think you were in in the middle America, maybe. Yeah, Nebraska, teaching at uh, Bellevue University. Yeah. Oh, so that was it, man. Yeah, still graduate level economics courses still, so, you know. <laughs> uh, but we are actually from the same area in southeast Michigan. Uh, I know, Michael, you grew up in Livonia. I grew up in Plymouth-Canton area, which is literally one town over. So I, I, I hate you for your marching band. Your marching band. You, you, yeah, they, they're, they're, they're nationally famous. Yeah, they're amazing. They're they are. so They're so good. They're so amazingly good. And a buddy of mine, when I was in high school, and in middle school, uh, he his house actually is really when I was in middle school. His house backed right up to the the practice grounds of the Plymouth Canton, the PCEP marching band, and we got to listen to them play and do stuff all the time. And they uh, they were really wonderful, actually. Even way, way back then, they have a, a real legacy of it. I wasn't on the marching band because I wasn't a fucking nerd, but <laughs> yeah. You know. uh, which high school did you go to? This will be le- this this will be the least interesting part of the podcast. There will be a very small number of people <laughs> who will be really interested in talking about Southeast Michigan stuff, but yeah, uh, right. those people will tune out um, by now. Except maybe our Russian Federation buddy. Maybe he he's gleaning uh, right. geographical secrets from this podcast. But anyway, I'm sorry. What where, which high school did you go to in the Livonia area? Yeah, it was Livonia Franklin, you know. I mean, we did good. Uh, we did all right. We made it to nationals a few times uh, and uh, always did quite well at states. Uh, but, you know, um, Plymouth Kent, we look at you and we hate you. Just You're, you're that good. We hate you. <laughs> I remember I remember I wrestled from some Livonia Franklin people. Uh, it's just too funny. Um, all right, cool. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything you want to – uh, any way people can follow you or anything you want to plug maybe potentially before we get off uh, of this podcast. I will link to your Amazon spread so people can go check out your books if they want to pick one up or take a look at them. Um, and yeah, also, sure. your Wikipedia page is very good. Um, it, I, I have to say, it was uh, I thought it was quite informative for, for a Wikipedia page. It, it looked like, I don't know if you got that professionally done or what happened, but I was, I was rather impressed with uh, the, the amount of credentials that went into that. Yeah, but, yeah. if you don't mind, I'd like to, to, to pitch the most recent book that I had come out recently was Aspirational Revolution, which is, uh, I mean, discusses exactly what we've been talking about with uh, universal basic income uh, and, and where the problems that we're facing now, why we're here and, and um, what's coming next and how we can deal with these issues. Uh, and then next coming out later uh, in the middle of next year, I've got another book, Market Insanity, Toxic that Toxic, another topic we talked about here, uh, is, is all about how your how our own brains are tricking us into making dumbass decisions. It's, nice. It's, it's, it's what that book is about. <laughs> Fucking nice. <laughs> uh, actually, this all sounds great, man. I can't wait to check those out when they come out. If you want to you know, send me an advanced copy. Maybe I can, I can talk about them on, uh, on air or something. Uh, but no pressure. Anyway, um, Michael, thank you so much. If, if, you know, if anybody wants to check you out, where should they go? 
Uh, Facebook. Just Facebook.com slash Michael Tallard, I think. Facebook.com slash Michael Tallard. You can just Google Michael Tallard and his stuff will come up. Uh, yeah, you'll find me. Cool. Well, thank you so much again for your time, Mike. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on, man. All right. Take it easy. Have a good one.